Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to talk about a relatively unusual topic, something other than COVID-19. Uh, what we, we used to do before the pandemic craziness started. So uh, this it's a, not to make light of it because it's a serious issue. We're going to talk about breast cancer. Obviously affects more women than men. Uh, in fact, one in eight women in their lifetime will come down with breast cancer. This year, 2021, we're looking at nearly 300,000 women in the U.S. being diagnosed with invasive breast cancer and another 50,000 on top of that with non-invasive breast cancer, which is kind of a, we'll, we'll get into the details of that, but we've discussed it before, but it prob probably isn't breast cancer. But anyway, nevertheless, that's a lot of people and affects, if it's not affecting you and you're male, I'm sure you have a woman in your life, like maybe your mother or your sister or your wife. So it's a serious issue that affects in some way, virtually all of us. So we are going to discuss that in depth today with the author of Busting Breast Cancer, Dr. Uh, Susan Wadia Ellis. Ellis. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McCall. It's a pleasure to be here. So you, you, you are not a medical doctor, but you have a PhD, in a, I believe, in the Energy Economics and Political Development at the Fletcher School. Is that correct? Not quite. I have a, a graduate degree, they call it a MAUD, in energy economics and political development. My PhD is actually in, um, in women's studies with a focus on women's autobiographical writing. So Perfect. It, is, yeah, that, is, so, is, that, is that anything like autobiographical memory? Autobiographical memory? I'm assuming. Let's hope it is. No, it's not. It's it's actually. I was just kidding. That's a term uh -oh. that's used to describe people with uh, photographic memories. That's oh, term. oh, that's my son. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. No, it's different. It's different. But but um, this really means that I am an investigative reporter, and mm -hmm. and uh, so I've come to this with a very innocent, independent mind. Um, and I think it helps that I haven't had a television in 50 years. So I haven't had a lot of the brainwashing on pink ribbons and everything else that uh, surrounds breast cancer in this culture. So it's, uh, yeah. I, I think it, well, it's helpful. You could have a television or at least a monitor and access the news on the internet through, through vetted channels. But I agree, avoiding mainstream propaganda is a really wise strategy and kudos to you for doing it for five decades. That's quite extraordinarily uncommon. Right. Yeah, that's great. I don't know what, what I just care what motivated you to take this unusual course of behavior. I, I, it just happened. I've just, apparently I'm happy without it. And I certainly watch these days, lots of different YouTube and mm -hmm. you know, different other platforms. I mean, I'm not uninformed, right. um, but I guess I just didn't like, you know, all the advertisements and all of these people that I didn't know coming into my living room. I, you know, I, I just sort of would rather hear them on the radio if I'm listening to news or, uh, and of course with, with um, smartphones, you know, you can, access whatever kind of information you want to access so it's fine but but i really did and i also lived in vermont for 15 years when the pink ribbons were beginning and would shop at a co-op so i wouldn't even see i really didn't even know about october being breast cancer awareness month it was a, a yeah phenomenon to me well well i, I was going to say this for the end with the susan coleman and breast cancer awareness but uh, before I want to dive into that first, but before we do that, I want you to help us understand what motivated you to write this book. 
Sure, sure. I have lost many friends, and I say many, I'm thinking more than five, to recurrent metastatic breast cancer. And um, as I'm sure you know, recurrent metastatic breast cancer means that you were, quote, successfully treated for an early stage breast cancer. And then within months, years, or in some cases, decades, you had you have a recurrence. And in apparently 20 to 40% of the cases of women who have been successfully treated in the United States today, they will end up with recurrent metastatic breast cancer, which always means some kind of an early death sentence for most women. And I just got very angry. Um, I, I, I love to investigate new topics. I've always sort of been a, a change maker, a culture throughout my whole career. I've, I've just followed and done what I wanted to do. And, um, and this, I just, I just fell into it and wouldn't let it go. Oh, good. Well, thank you for compiling this because it really is indeed a great resource uh, if you want to get up to speed on what the, the skinny is on the uh, breast cancer scenario and all the gory details behind it. So let's skip to this uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October and you know why this is uh, such a fraud, essentially, and the Susan Komen Foundation com you know, combined with that. Right, right. Well, it's really the pharmaceutical industry's uh, celebration, I think, of all of the money they're making from um, mammograms to, um, uh, we can talk about overdiagnosing tens of thousands of women every year, and then overtreating them, and then the possibility that sometimes the treatment will increase inflammation. And as we know very well, um, understanding the new metabolic theory of cancer, that's what can exacerbate, that's what can sometimes initiate um, breast cancer in women who, as you said earlier, have been diagnosed with, let's say, stage zero, but, but, but don't have any invasive tumors. Um, so, so I think that that was the reason. Okay, good. So... Yeah, there is, it, it seems the financial component is a, a very serious motivating catalyst for much of what we're seeing in the breast cancer industry. And it is indeed an industry because of the, uh, the finances involved. So wh why don't you enlighten us on some of the, the components for, that motivates this type of behavior? As I, I've found in my research and anyone who reads the book, the book is now out. Let me, I'm so proud of it. It's so beautifully designed. I really need to show it. It's out on Amazon now. It's on my website. It's all over the place. But um, I, I think the, um, the, the, the reason that um, I wanted to, to do this book was really to teach women how to avoid getting breast cancer um, because the money is being made once you have a mammogram, you can sometimes end up, as we said, being unnecessarily treated, diagnosed and treated, and then that becomes incredibly expensive. And now, um, as, as I had said, 40 to, to 20 to 40% of women who are being diagnosed with, with treated for an early stage breast cancer are ending up um, being treated for recurrent metastatic breast cancer, which means that they're spending an ordinance amount of money. Uh, the drugs that have been developed um, are not to stop the disease. The drugs that have been developed are to extend your life. And I, I think the most important thing about my book is as I had started way back 12 years ago, looking at all of the epidemiological studies, the statistical studies on how birth control drugs, how low vitamin D3, all of these issues would be creating a lot of breast cancer. No one could tell a woman why she got breast cancer. They would say to women, well, maybe Jennifer, it was just your turn, or maybe Jennifer, um, you were the unlucky one. Um, and, and I was really the lucky one because in 2013, I discovered Dr. Thomas Seafrid's book called The Metabolic Theory of Cancer, which you have highlighted a number of times in your interviews. And I believe gave him the 
um, the Game Changer Award early on that you give out every year for major discoveries. And once I found that book by Dr. Seyfried, my life changed. Now I could begin to piece together all of the statistical studies on birth control drug risks and um, progestin menopausal drug risks and and mammogram risks and biopsy. I could I could begin to piece all of these statistical studies together and help and come up with and understand why I was able to come up with effective prevention steps for women. Um, so this has happily become a good news book that women need to understand that we can um, prevent this disease probably 80%, if not more of the time. Yeah, I would uh, agree. And this is, and thank you for shifting and transitioning to the hopeful side, because even right. though the statistics I quoted earlier can be somewhat discouraging, uh, it really highlights the fact that this is a serious issue that you have to pay attention to. It doesn't mean you have to use conventional strategies to do it, but there are in fact these natural lifestyle interventions that could essentially eliminate it. I would go to say that you could probably reduce it by a factor of 95% or greater. Uh, and that's because 80% with the, with the variables you discuss in your book, especially the vitamin D and metabolic flexibility, uh, removing insulin resistance. But in addition to that, the underappreciated one, and I don't recall you mentioning it in your book though, but it is, and it's common because almost any natural health educator misses this one. They understand and acknowledge the fact that we uh, need to avoid dangerous processed foods. No one disagrees with that. That's a non-controversial. But embedded in that is the uh, uh, lack of appreciation of just how dangerous certain processed foods are. And, the, and I'm referring specifically to vegetable oils, which are loaded with an, uh, an omega-6 fat called linoleic acid. And that in excess, I think, is really explains for the not additional 19% improvement you can get. Because if you minimize this to pre-1850 pre levels to essentially one to 2% of the total daily calorie intake, uh, which is about 90 to 95% lower than the average American is consuming currently, that forms the basis for the molecular biological changes that actually continue to, to contribute to the primary issue. And that certainly metabolic flexibility is important and vitamin D, they all contribute. But, but when you overlay that on top of linoleic acid excess, that's just probably, it's probably the most significant metabolic poison in our diet. Well, Dr. McCall, you know, you're right. And, and the first simple step that I'm recommending to all women is to lose your excess body fat. Yes. And yeah. the question is, and, and maybe your, your research has shown you this, you know, how much do these um, vegetable, these processed vegetable oils, these dangerous oils, how much are they contributing in the processed food to today's obesity epidemic? Oh, it's a huge, it's a huge variable. Exactly, exactly. And so if women can begin to follow a low carb ketogenic lifestyle, as I talk about in chapter one, and lose excess body fat. They're doing a, a you know a double service to their body. They're stopping produce this excess estrogen from their fat cells that are attacking the mitochondria, which we can talk about in a minute. Yeah, that, that's key because that's what L right. excess LA does. But but you can right. go on a low carb, high fat diet and have a significant percentage of that fat be linoleic acid. Well, you wouldn't want to do that. that. <laughs> no, but there are many people who do make that mistake. I can I'm confident of that. So it's the devil's in the details, but what many people also fail to appreciate is the obesity component that you referenced to. Typically that's a symptom, but it's an important symptom with breast cancer because as an artifact of having high levels of visceral body fat, your body makes a, an enzyme called aromatase, which increases estrogen and help us understand why that's such a big issue with breast cancer. Well, that takes us back to Tom Seyfried's metabolic theory of cancer. And that we now understand, since he published that book in 2012, we now understand that what causes that first cancer cell to happen in every person, and that can be a breast cancer cell or a brain cancer cell, 
is there are assaults that are happening during your life to your life that are creating um, assaults on the power batteries within, in this case, your breast cells, uh, creating assaults to the power batteries that basically suffocate them. And, and what was discovered, I suppose, in the 70s is that these little power batteries in our bodies. You're referring in, to mitochondria, just so people. The, the, exactly, the mitochondria. And, and, I, and I tend to interchange the word mitochondria with power batteries because mitochondria, that's a big word. And that can really, you know, turn people off and they're like, it's too hard for me to understand. Oh, no, not in our viewers. Our viewers are very specific. Okay, 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 fine. And, and so anyway, so, so all of these things are suffocating the mitochondria. And when you have unbalanced estrogen to progesterone um, then or or chemical like progesterones then that 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 excess uh, hormone is a suffocating um, operation it, it it can harm those 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 mitochondria um, and so uh, that's why I also talk about in chapter three no four in the book is the importance of not taking birth control drugs or the prem pro what they call the combination menopausal relief drugs or even having a um a a progestin laced iud um inserted because that is that has now been shown and i talk about that in in the chapter uh to not only accelerate breast cancer but also has the the potential of um of initiating breast cancer yeah well the the reason why it's so important to me is that many people may not uh realize or uh, re recall because i mentioned this per previously but it was probably over a decade ago that when i first started in medicine after I finished my family medicine residency in 1985, I was actually a paid speaker by the drug companies. And they would fly me around the country to lecture other physicians about hormone replacement therapy. Because um, I was a big advocate. I was brainwashed effectively through the propaganda that they supplied, the drug propaganda that supplied medical school. And I was a firm believer in it. And uh, you know, there, there appeared to be, from the studies that were published, a benefit. But when you dive, dive deeper into it, you realize that it's all hogwash. And it does, in fact, the estrogen will increase your, a woman's risk for cancer. As I understand, it's because of these estrogen receptors. That's why many people who are diagnosed with breast cancer, I mean, they do this estrogen receptor test to see and, and, and seek to minimize the, the estrogen load, uh, either, and maybe even put the women on estrogen receptor blockers. Um, so that, that's a big issue. But this progesterone is another one. And, and most of it's related to the fact that there's synthetic chemicals because uh, you can have natural estrogen in progesterone or synthetic. And the synthetic obviously intuitively would make sense to be far more dangerous. And in fact, they are. Uh, and I, for me, one of the, what your book massively highlighted, and I tend to forget how dangerous it is as these birth control pills because every one of the birth controls to the last one has a synthetic progesterone in it. Pro progestin it's called, not progesterone, but synthetic progesterone, which is progestin. And that is the killer when it comes to breast cancer. So why don't you help us understand that in a little more detail? Sure, in 2010, there was an incredibly important study that has gotten buried. Um, and um, it, it came out of the, the, the lead researcher uh, at that point was in Vienna, Joseph Pes Penninger. And on that uh, study team of about 12 people, one now being um, the CEO and president of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, they had spent t 10 years apparently uh, working with mice in a preclinical setting, um, settings around the world, trying to figure out why women who would take progestin drugs, be they birth control drugs or be they menopausal drugs, women who were taking this synthetic progesterone, why they were having 26 plus percentage increased risks of developing breast cancer. And they finally published the study in 2010 that basically explained in, in some more detail, not totally, but in some more detail, exactly how the progestin 
pulls out something called or, or activates tons of something called rankle, which I understand is a protein. And that apparently, though they don't say these words, suffocate the mitochondria in a woman's breast cells. And that's why you have not only a, uh, an initiation, a 26% with postmenopausal women, we now realize a 26% increase in, in breast cancer, but you also have, it, we see all of the statistical studies in terms of women who have been taking birth control drugs. And I must list three dozen of these studies. I cite them in the chapter on progestin drugs. Um, and the sad thing is that no one, not even researchers since then, in the field of breast cancer prevention are even citing the study. They're not aware of it for some reason, but it was published in October of 2010 in Nature Magazine, which we all know is a very significant, well-known scientific mag, uh, you know, journal. Well, so it's not only well-known, it's one of the most prestigious. It's one of the top three scientific journals in the world. Science. Exactly, exactly. So I quote directly from that in my chapter on the progestin. And the other thing that I mentioned, and again, I'm sure you know this, the medical profession, the scientific profession, the government cancer agencies, no one will make up two words. They conflate the two words progesterone with progestin, even though they are chemically different substances. You will find in studies that are talking about one or the other that they conflate, they intersperse, they use the terms interchangeably in these studies. So you come out of it having no idea if you've just read about progestin, the chemical that causes breast cancer and accelerates it, or if you've read about natural progesterone, which when natural progesterone is, 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 is balanced with natural estrogen, there's not a problem. Uh, you know, you, you don't have an overabundance. You're not, the estrogen is not hurting mm -hmm. um, the mitochondria in a healthy breast cell. There's nothing wrong with natural estrogen. I think the other thing that women really need to understand is they need to have an estrogen metabolite test to see if they're actually efficiently processing their excess used estrogen and they're urinating it on a regular basis so that they're keeping their estrogen progesterone balanced. Um, or they can take an estrogen balancing test to start off with uh, or hormone balancing test and see if their estrogen and their progesterone is even, and if not, then take the metabolite test to see if maybe they're a little sluggish in eliminating their used up estrogen, which becomes toxic. And then they can take DIM supplements and all sorts of wonderful things to, and you know so much about this, to eliminate this excess toxic estrogen from their body. Yeah, and it gets a more complex version to it also because estrone, Estrogen is divided into three types, estrone, which is uh, estradiol and estriol. So it's the ratios of these things that become important too. So ideally you want to measure all three. And uh, when you're administering natural or bioidentical estrogen or progesterone, you want to, the, the delivery system becomes a big issue too. So uh, it's frowned upon by most people understand this at a deeper level to swallow it because <laughs> your body is not used to swallowing your hormones. And as a result of swallowing, it gets absorbed uh, through the bloodstream and then bypasses your, has to go through the liver from the gut first. And then the liver processes because it perceives it as a foreign um, molecule and it methylates it and, and it's a different molecule and that's going to screw things up too. So typically you want to, you can, a big proponent of natural progesterone was uh, John Lee, who's since passed. So he's, I was a big fan of his in the mid nineties and he, he popularized or helped popularize uh, transdermal progesterone, but and it, which, which I had thousands and thousands of women on and hit unbelievable results, but almost universally, they would all get great results the first few months. And then it would stop working because there would be a, uh, sort of a tachyphylaxis of resistance to absorption through the skin. So the ideal is, uh, and if anyone's interested in this further, the, the, the major pioneer in this is uh, Dr. Jonathan Wright, who actually uh, brought bioidentical hormone therapy to the United States. And, and he concluded that transmucosal administration or application into 
different mucosal surfaces in the body. And in a women, they have two options. One would be the vagina and then the other is the rectum. And the men, we've only got the rectum. So using that route of entry can bypass this liver metabolism and get the hormone directly into your blood. So, you know, it's like most things in health, the devil's in the details. So you, I mean, it's important to know the big picture, but once you understand it, then you really got to dive deep to, to know how to optimally implement it. Yeah, and there are some studies. In fact, David Zava, who has begun working, who has been a long time working with um, John Lee's um, mm-hmm, sure. science writer, Virginia Hopkins, he offers his lab out west offers both the estrogen metabolite and the estrogen balancing, and I and there it's a very user friendly group. I, I, there are others, there are other sure. labs as well, but but as you say, he that group was one of the first to really look at natural progesterone and how important it was. And natural progesterone apparently is also a tumor suppressor, you know, that people again, don't talk much about. Um, so there we are. Yeah. It's used for men with prostate cancer too. With great, great success. As I last re- recall on that topic, I haven't reviewed prostate cancer for a while though. Yeah. 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 I think of, of the five um, simple steps that my book talks about is one that that many of your interviewers and interviewees and your books talk about, and that of course is the vitamin D3. Mm-hmm. And what I found really interesting about that is that it would appear that breast tumors grow much faster than most, if any, other uh, tumors in the body, uh, and so therefore. Even the studies will show that if you keep your D3 level at, let's say, 40 nanograms per milliliter, that will usually protect you against prostate cancer or liver cancer. But for breast cancer, um, it's been shown that there's never been a woman diagnosed with breast cancer who has a D3 blood level over 60. So that 60 becomes the magical number when a woman is trying to protect herself from developing breast cancer, you know, using the D3. And of course, that is the cheapest, the easiest way of, not necessarily the easiest. Um, uh, Once you get older, it gets much more difficult to get your D3 above, above 60 or up to 60. So I find at this point, I need to be doing indoor tanning as well as on non, because I'm up in New England and it's winter time still, even though it happens to be April. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, it's full blown summer in Florida. <laughs> oh yeah, well I, I did a lot of house sitting in Key West. Well, and I would rent my condo out, you know, on the ocean here in Manchester by the sea, and so I know the Key West summers, and it's great. I don't care, you know. <laughs> it's great. So I would tend to disagree with the assessment though, because it's, it, it may be not easy to optimize it to 80, but it certainly it's easy to take the steps and it's inexpensive as heck. There is no less expensive supplement, I guess, is maybe salt might, if you consider it a supplement, but uh, you just have to swallow a pill and you're right. Most people in the United States need to take a supplement because they live like you in, in areas that are similar latitudes to the New England. And uh, the latitude tends to be a real limiting factor because most people in the U.S. are non, unable to get significant vitamin D from the sun from September, October to April, May in right. that range somewhere. There. But, the, it, but in any, even if you were in the middle of summer, like which is June 21st, the summer solstice, uh, you still have to be outside. And you got to yes. be outside in a bathing suit, yes. in full clothing. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It right. just doesn't work. You got to right. have you know, a full body tan, right? But, uh, so, but it's so it's, it's so extraordinary. And let me just expand on the numbers too, because you said sixty nanograms per milliliter. That's correct. I, I think that's the minimum threshold. But I don't think there's a huge benefit in going over much higher than that. So I, I, I keep the range at 60 to 80. And for those of our viewers who are not in the United States and are in Canada or in Europe, they use a different unit structure. It's called nanomoles per liter. And the number would be multiplied by 2.5. So it's 100 to 150 nanomoles per liter, or 60 to 80 nanograms per ml. So those are the, and you cannot feel it. You cannot feel if your vitamin D is 10 or 100, you just can't. 
It just, I mean, maybe indirectly because you came down with cancer, but normally you cannot feel it. Uh, so get your blood tested. It is really key. It, right. You'll never know and figure it out otherwise. But once you establish a, a rhythm, you know, it takes probably a few years to get your rhythm because of the cycles with the, with the winter and right. summer, but then you just keep up the same thing. I and mean, you may have to check periodically because as you get older, as you mentioned, you have challenges with optimizing your level, but this is well, really, we're spending time on this. This is so important because just doing vitamin D, like you mentioned, 60 to 80, I believe will knock down your risk of breast cancer by 80%, 80%. Exactly. Exactly. Now the other problem with American women is the obesity. And, yes. and D3 and the obesity. So that apparently if you take 5,000 IUs um, of D3 a day, it could be that your body is only able to utilize half of that. And the other half is going um, and being stored in your fat cells. So that um, what, what some um, functional medicine physicians are finding is when, when women or men start to lose their weight, because they're on ketogenic diets or whatever. Once they lose 15% of their weight, the, the fat cells let loose with the D3 and their D3 goes shooting up. So it's not as if you'll never be able to use that D3, but if you're overweight, understand that when you're taking 1,000, 5,000 IUs a day of D3, your body is not absorbing it. Half of it's going to your fat cells. So you well, it's absorbing it. It's just translocating it into the fat tissue. Okay. 1,000 to 5,000 units a day for the vast majority, maybe 80, 90% of the people, adults, uh, is inadequate. Most, the average adult with the typical UV exposure is about requirement is about 8,000 units. And that's been well documented through Kara Bagley's work uh, in grassroots health and over 15,000 patients that they've analyzed with this data, so. Yeah, yeah, in my book, I talk about Carol's amazing work as as well as Michael Holick at Boston University, um, as well as um, Cedric Garland, who is also with Carol down in San Diego. Um, those three, in my estimation, have done wonderful work, especially around breast cancer and D3, um, and and they're you know quite quite amazing. Um, but the the other thing that I find very very difficult with women, or probably men too, is you say and D3 is very important. They go, oh no problem, I'm fine. I take a thousand IU's a day, and I'm like, what's your number? It's a joke. They say, I don't know, but my doctor says I'm fine. I go, no, no, no. And of course, you know, we haven't talked about the government and the misinformation that unfortunately our U.S. government is now giving people when it comes to D3 or mammograms or any of those things. Um, but the the government is sort of saying we don't see a connection between D3 and, and breast cancer, or maybe if there is one, 1,000 is fine. And so the doctors will tell them, oh, that's fine. You're taking 1,000. And they don't even test sometimes. You have to demand the test. So that's the big thing about D3 is for every person to know their blood level. Um, and yeah, and if they don't know their blood level, they don't know if they're protected or not. Yeah, I couldn't give you, I couldn't agree more. And let me just share an interesting example. Um, Michaela Peterson, Jordan Peterson's daughter, uh, who is a, she was really pretty much the catalyst for implementation of the carnivore diet. She uh, has a history of severe autoimmune disease with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, she was going to, inter- she did interview for my book, my most recent book on COVID-19. And in the process, I wanted, I had a lot of experience with JRA and wanted to see if I could help her. Any- and so the course, the first thing, because just like breast cancer for any autoimmune disease, vitamin D is crucial. It's really, really hard to beat it unless your vitamin D is optimized. So the, and the reason I'm going, sharing this story, because it's so illustrative of the challenges with understanding this information. This is why both of us have shared these numbers really carefully. Because when Michaela shared her vitamin D results with me, it was 55. That's So she just gave me the 55. So I knew she lived in Canada. So I said, Michaela, is that 55 nanograms per milliliter? Which would be fantastic. And she, I think she thought it was fantastic. And then she actually sent me the test and it was 55 nanomoles. So she had a vitamin D level below 20. Below 20. And here's the interesting part that I wanted to emphasize again, because that test result came back normal 
range on the lab. So you just have to scratch out the normal range when you're looking at vitamin D and ignore it because they're lying to you. Well, maybe lying is too harsh a term because they're just, it's just, they're just ignorant. They have not integrated the, the, studies from the last 20 years would show these levels are what you need. So you have to, you've got to write these numbers down and you've got to, you, you have to be your doctor. Can't rely on your doctor, as you just said, because most of the time they're ignorant about this and they're not going to give you the information. Now there are some good ones out there and they get this, but they are the exception. They're not the rule. Right, right, right. And another important thing about that I found about this book and, um, you know, why it's so important for women to read this, the book and understand the five simple steps in busting breast cancer is because most of these steps go against everything that the American Cancer Society is telling us, that Susan G. Komen is telling us, that in some cases are, most cases are regular primary care practitioners are telling us. And women, if you have studied any of the psychology of women that came out in the 70s, have a much harder time questioning authority than men. And so as breast cancer now becomes this absolutely you know, epidemic that surrounds us, especially in the United States where we have the highest breast cancer rates of anywhere in the world for a major country, um, women have got to learn how to look at the facts and hopefully the facts are throughout my book and, and to learn to be brave and question authority and quote, take risks by going against those authorities. I mean, you just think about uh, a mud puddle and 15 year olds and, you know, the boys will jump really fast. If you say, I bet you can't jump over that. And they don't care if they get their feet dirty or whatever, splash on their clothes and girls will go, oh, I can't, I have the wrong shoes on. I can, I might mess something up. I mean, from early ages, women are so much more terrified of, of going against authority. And in order to as we've been saying, protect ourselves, knock down the risk of breast cancer by 80% or more, 99%, it means a woman is going to have to stand up to the American Cancer Society and say, yes, I'm going to have a clinical breast exam. Yes, I'm going to do breast self-exams again. No, I don't want a mammogram. You know, all of these things that, that go against everything that the woman is being taught right now by the cancer industry. Yeah, so I, I've done extensive articles on mammography in the past, so much so that the State of Illinois Medical Board decided to discipline or remove my license because I wasn't selling anything. I was just telling people the dangers of mammograms and disputing a, a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Fortunately, I had to, uh, the medical board wanted to remove my license and they, I think they successfully started the action then I, we appealed and sued them in the state supreme court and we won because it was a freedom of speech issue so why don't you share with people why because we haven't talked about mammograms for a while uh, right. but okay. but why don't you tell us review the the highlights of why mammograms are not your best choice <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean they can really get you into trouble one simple mammogram you know can really take you down a bad path um and um well, the first thing I always say is, who thinks it's really helpful to have, you know, two big metal plates with tons of pressure smash your breast tissue? That's number one. I mean, it, it has been shown, although you won't find a lot of studies because no one will fund these studies, that some breast, t t some cancerous tumors can actually be smashed, broken um, by a mammogram. And of course, you know, we know that breast cells one, or cancer cells, once they're on the loose, can fuse with macrophages and end up giving you um, a metastatic breast cancer. I mean, it's, it's, it's shown in, in so many studies and I talk about that in a few of the chapters in my book. Um, and so th that's the first thing about mammograms, but probably the major uh, concern that I have with mammograms is, um, 
the fact that they are overdiagnosing women with what they call D, used to be called DCI, used to be called atypical cells. Then they revved it up the fear. It's all about fear. Then they revved it up to something called DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ. When again, as you mentioned earlier, it sounds dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I know what's carcinoma. Oh my God, right? And of course, it's not. It's not a tumor. It's not. It's not invasive. It's not cancer. And they're showing that maybe five percent of DCIS will eventually, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, turn to cancer. Well, that. That's a normal risk level for someone in their sixties, let's say. So, so they're they're cooking the books with with the numbers. Um, but then they and they now call it ah, it's no longer DCIS. Now they're calling it stage zero breast cancer. So I have met so many women, and you and they hear about my book, they go, oh, thank you. I had breast cancer, but happily they found it early. I'm fine. And I say to them, what stage was it? And sometimes they can't, they don't know. But if they do know, they might say stage zero. And the first thing I want to say to them is you did not have breast cancer. You never had breast cancer. Um, but the problem is they were treated as if they had breast cancer. So a biopsy and fine needle aspiration was done, which could have then begun to, you know, it inflames it, it could create the cancer. But they had you know, sometimes they had surgery. I've met women who have had double mastectomies because they had DCIS. And um, and and it's it's a travesty. It's almost as bad as Angelina Jolie, per uh, yeah. prophylactic mastectomy. That's right. That's right. And of course, as soon as she did that, the rate of prophylactic mastectomies just increased like crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, women are being, it's like the COVID epidemic. People are being given all of these reasons to be fearful about breast cancer. And my book becomes, you know, a unique piece of um, uh, uh, merchandise in, in, in the store because it's saying, no, no, breast cancer, you don't have to fear it anymore. It is this, there are ways that you can stop it before it starts. And we're finding out with recurrent metastatic breast cancer, there are ways that are non-toxic that you can make that go away. Um, and there's even a case study from Turkey in my book of how they have used strictly non-toxic metabolic therapies mm -hmm. to remove all of the metastatic cells from this 30-year-old woman. Um, and as long as she was willing to participate and stay on her low-carb diet and have her non-toxic therapies every few months, she stayed clear. So... Yeah. I, I, I know I, I interviewed the author of that study previously. Dr. So, Slocum. Slocum, yes. Yes. Really so yeah. the but but you touched on this biopsy issue and you just kind of skirted over it. And I, I want you to head back there and expand on that because this is something that Dr. Seyfried has highlighted as a big risk. And yeah. to be very, very careful to ever get a, a biopsy for a tumor, especially a breast cancer. So why don't you share a little bit more details on this? Well, this is what I'm really doing a lot of my new research is on, um, you know, trying to find the studies that are out there and trying to share that with people, but there aren't a lot of studies. Um, but as I said earlier, that it looks like it's 20 to 40%, and I think it's closer to the 40%, I hate to say, of women who were treated with early stage breast cancer in the US at least now go on to develop this recurrent metastatic breast cancer. And then the question becomes, what percentage of them, of, of those cases were caused, what percentage was caused by the biopsy or the biopsies. Um, and, and as Dr. Seifried so clearly describes, he's taking a whole, taking a whole chapter in, in his book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease to describe the actual biological process 
of when a tumor cell is released from um, a biopsy and, and the inflammation is happening, the immune system cells, including the macrophage, come in to try and heal this new wound that the oncologist, uh, the surgeon has just created in the woman's breast. And that macrophage then merges, you know, morphs with that errant uh, breast cancer cell and takes off into the woman's body. And as, and apparently, you know, it's, it's a fairly logical metabolic disease because um, the majority of women who end up with metastatic breast cancer, it goes either to the bone, to the brain, or to the liver, and maybe one other spot. Um, but there, it's, it's very um, clear that that there's a process involved, a metabolic process, not, not a haphazard uh, process involved. So what I'm trying to do, and I talk about this in chapter 10, is get the state cancer boards to release the data. Right now, women who have metastatic breast cancer, they're completely alone. They don't even know how many other women have metastatic breast cancer, re recurrent metastatic breast cancer. The state cancer boards, as you well know, is they're required to, to collect that data within six months of a diagnosis from licensed physicians and licensed clinics. But the state cancer boards, to the best of my knowledge, are not allowed to release that data. And so no one understands how, and I feel like the recurrent breast cancer epidemic, metastatic breast cancer epidemic is growing exponentially. Um, and you can just see this by looking at the exponential growth of the drug in income coming from the metastatic breast cancer drugs, that they're now more than 50% of all the income coming into the industry is met in the breast cancer industry is the metastatic breast cancer drug income. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing those details about the importance of avoiding biopsies. Uh, there's another interesting fact you mentioned in your book that I, I wasn't directly familiar with, and I suspect many people aren't uh, also familiar with is the use of a drug that I believe one in four American adults over the age of 40 are taking. One in four, it's 25% of the population. And they found that women who had been on this drug for more than 10 years, they actually doubled their risk of breast cancer. And that drug, many of you may have guessed by now, are statins. Right. Now, apparently statins do, do lower glucose levels, is it? Um, and, um, but... That's the only thing I've ever found out about statins that's, that tends to be good. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it, was, um, it was, you know, really uh, uh, terrifying to find that out about the statin drugs and breast cancer. Um, so that apparently it's a really powerful kind of, kind of drug that wants to be avoided at all, at all costs. Yeah, and the, another... Uh, highlight of your book that I found was the uh, non-progesterone IUD. So why don't you talk about IUDs for a bit and the copper alternative that I believe can be inserted for t up to 10 years or so and provide contraceptive benefits. Um, and how that in the United States, the introduction of this device for a typical woman I'm not sure if it's covered by insurance or not, but it's a th like a thousand dollars where the actual cost of the device is like 50 cents. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, this is where my my graduate work in political economy came in and <laughs> served me well. I just kept, you know, unpeeling the onion. And, um, and what I found out is in the 70s, I, I had a, an IUD, a copper coil IUD, was all they, they, they didn't have progestin-based IUDs back then. Um, and I, um, I had it inserted for, it was there for 10 years and it served me well. Um, apparently in 1999, um, there was only one IUD 
on the U.S. market. And that was the, the, the current copper coil that they, have, they named Paragard. And there's a whole story about why there was only one, because there used to be about five or six. But anyway, in 1999, there was only one. And suddenly, overnight, the FDA decided to reclassify this medical device, this copper coil, this 50 cent copper coil, from a medical device where it had been for 30 years to a pharmaceutical drug. And they said that the copper is what is causing the effectiveness of the IUD. Therefore, it's a drug. It's the copper. It's a drug. Um, and so when they did that, they virtually blocked the market for all other hormone-free IUDs. Because as Europe had then and continued to make more makes and models with different brands of, IU, of copper coil and hormone-free IUDs, they were blocked from coming on the US market because now that IUDs were considered to be, the hormone-free IUDs were considered to be drugs, they had to do multi-million dollar, hundred million dollar studies because it's a 10-year double-blind placebo-controlled study for any drug. And now this copper coil was considered a drug. <laughs> and so meanwhile, in Europe today- yeah, excuse me, can you, hold that, can you hold that thought for a moment, Susan? Because sure. I just want to interject something that's really important. That it's so shocking that they could change the rules. Because mo most typically, the reason why there's exceptions, they grandfather things in. And they have grandfathered the most toxic, some of the most toxic chemicals known to man as safe because they've been in use for a long time. But yet when it comes to a money-making pharmaceutical device, they can change the rules and not grandfather them and require these, these double-blinded placebo-controlled trials, which is in many places makes a lot of sense. They should have done this for these grandfathered chemicals, which are toxic as can be, but they're not. So anyway, I'm sorry for that. It's just- No, it's fine. No, I, I right, right. No, I mean, I, I have a hard time being able to present this information without getting really angry. And, yeah. and it, because um, it, it's, it, it, it's horrific, it's absolutely horrific. And again, women need to understand that we have to question authority. The authorities out there are not looking after our best interests. The authorities have now been co-opted by the industry and they're looking out for their investors. And they're talking about a 10% increase um, in, um, in metastatic breast cancer drug income. And so many women are developing breast cancer because they've been forced to go on the birth control drug because the cost of that hormone-free IUD became unbearable and only if you had insurance that would cover it. So poor women were being given or still are being given the, the, the progestin only shots that last for three months that increase their risk of breast cancer worse than if they're taking the pill, but the pill is increasing it much more than if they're on a hormone-free IUD because they're not getting that progestin. So basically I believe that that reclassification was done only to support the birth control drug industry. And, and then, you know, when you think about 2002 and many women, postmenopausal women at least <clears throat> will remember, that's when they, they stopped the study of the progestin-based menopausal relief drugs because it showed with this huge $700 million national women's health initiative, or they call it the National Health Initiative, in which they were studying the benefits and liabilities of these menopausal relief drugs, that that, that, is, that is when we found out, oh, this progestin in these menopausal relief drugs is increasing the, the development of palpable tumors by 26% within three years. So the question then became, once they knew that, why in the world didn't the National Institutes of Health also put in a big study on birth control drugs? And are the birth control drugs increasing breast cancer? Because as we know, birth control drugs have 10 times more progestin in them than the menopausal progestin drugs. 
And they didn't do it, I am sure, because the industry did not want to destroy the birth control revenues, the birth control drug revenues. And so <clears throat> there's a reason we have seen premenopausal women's breast cancer rates in the United States. And I show the study that my little group did. I, I still owe my statistician a couple thousand bucks. And we contacted seven state cancer boards. And we said, could you please send us? Because no one else had done this statistical study. We said, can you send us the rate of breast cancer of women under 50 years old between 1985 when they started to advertise those birth control drugs on TV from 1985 to like 2005. And we saw no matter if it were Florida, Colorado and Massachusetts, those were our three states that we ended up looking at that there was a one to 2% annual increase over those years in breast cancer rates in women under 50. And that's when birth control drugs really had taken off because we had the, the Clinton administration allowed this drug ads to be put on television so you could tell your doctor what drug you wanted instead of having the doctor tell you what drug you should have. Um, so that's, that's the um, that's the story. Okay, so for that, thank you for going into details because if that doesn't appear, you don't know what would because <laughs> that decision is responsible, directly responsible for killing tens of millions of women from breast cancer unnecessarily. Tens yes. of millions, yes. no question, yes. no question. Yes, that's reprehensible. Right, right. So and that's one of the political steps that my book talks about. There are seven political action steps. And one of them is for women's groups and health groups to go to the FDA and knock on the door and say, just change it, just change it, you know, change it back, make the hormone free IUD a medical device again and open up the market, flood the market with all of the European makes and models and make it. Well, that, that would be an effective strategy if we didn't live in a dino. What is a dino? That is a democracy in name only. We do not have a democracy. We have a federally, a captured federal regulatory agency that is absolutely non-responsive to the public, 100%. It's responsive to the industry. So it won't work. I mean, it's a, it's a laudatory effort, but it won't do a darn thing in my view. Right. So you've got to do it yourself. You've got to take control of your health. You've got to be your own doctor. So bottom line is do not personally take any hormonal birth control or anyone that you know or love have to take any of this stuff. You fortunately, there is a device. It's a copper IUD. So why don't you walk us through how someone who's interested in this relatively safe, I mean, there are some complications primarily from insertion and uterine perforation stuff, but they're relatively minor, relatively safe form of contraception. How do they get it without having to pay a thousand dollars? They go to Mexico. I mean, yeah. what's, what's the strategy here? Yeah, no, I mean, I say in the book, you know, the best way is, well, of course, if, if you do have medical insurance, um, th that's going to cover it, but it's a one-size-fits-all paragard, and that's not the way to go. That's not the best way to go. Best way to go is to go to Europe, if you can get there today, without being vaccinated, which I just read this morning you cannot, um, or go to Mexico. Um, Canada seems to be controlled similar to the U.S., even though it's not quite as bad. I think the cost of a paragard is much cheaper in Canada. That's the name of the copper, copper IUD, paragard. Yeah, that's the name of it. Um, and it, uh, so, but, but also don't bring it back with you because it's a drug and your Planned Parenthood clinic is not allowed to administer a foreign purchase drug to you. So if you bring back your $10 Paragard and let them know you got it in Mexico or it says from Mexico, they'll say, sorry, Sarah Lou, we cannot insert it. We can only insert one that's made, that's bought here, that's, which is a thousand dollars. It will kill you prematurely. <laughs> huh? That will kill you prematurely. Right. But, but I think it is better to get one that, that fits you well, because, mm -hmm. um, they're now 
uh, I don't know who's doing it, but but they're bringing so many court cases against the Paragard, uh, women having issues with it. And I don't know if this is a fabricated situation and it's a PR move uh, to, to take women away from them and to push women to the progestin-based um, IUDs. Uh, but apparently the progestin-based IUDs have the same risk level for breast cancer as the progestin drugs. So. It's not a solution. Well, this is just great. Uh, you've highlighted a very important issue that affects so many women. As we mentioned yeah. earlier, a third of uh, a third of a million, three hundred, nearly three hundred, well, nearly three hundred thousand women in the United States alone will come down with invasive, not stage zero, but invasive, either one through four breast cancer this year, and that's a lot of women. Right. So, let me, let me just summarize the recommendations and you can highlight and expand on what you want and then we can sign off. Sure. But the key thing, there, there's, this is not that hard. I firmly believe there's four steps you can do that will lower your risk of breast cancer because it's always gonna be there. It's just a matter of what is the risk from the current state it is today to 99% lower than that. It's literally one one hundredth. And what are those steps? Get your vitamin D level. Not only is it going to be breast cancer, it's going to be almost every other single cancer you're going to normal normalize and heart disease, which are the two biggest cause of deaths. Collectively, it's well over two thirds of your risk of dying is from heart disease and cancer. So why don't you do it? It's simple. It's virtually free. And you've got to be irrationally foolish not to integrate that. So that's step one. And you know, it's just a no cost deal. Become metabolically flexible. Uh, optimize your body weight, ideally through uh, uh, time-restricted eating. And, and if you're overweight now, reducing your carbohydrates and eventually going into cyclical ketogenesis because that, that will maintain it. But it, and part of that process, this is an important part of that, as I mentioned earlier, that virtually very, very few people understand. You simply cannot have vegetable oils. And believe me, you need to be OCD. You have to have obsessive compulsive disorder. You've got to like read every single label. Have any vegetable oil in there, canola oil, soy oil, sunflower. You cannot have it. That's because it's in almost all processed foods. And that means also you have to extend that to when all the foods you're eating, not just the ones you to eat at home. But if you're eating out, if you buy any fast food, if you're in a restaurant, guaranteed virtually 100% is going to be loaded with these vegetable oils. And it doesn't say, there's no warning label on it. Right. It's not like a pack of cigarettes that says, warning, it's going to increase your risk. It hasn't there. It should be there, but the, the, the government hasn't figured it out at this point. And we're probably decades away from that being implemented. So you've got to take control of it yourself. It's your responsibility. You cannot have vegetable oils. Same thing as vitamin D. It's going to radically lower your risk of not like breast cancer from every other cancer, every other chronic disease, uh, age-related macular degeneration, arthritis, heart disease, you name it, it's connected. So, and then finally for contrace contraception, don't use synthetic hormones. It's, it's an anathema. It's dangerous. It's going to radically increase your risk for cancer. If you, if, if you want to, if you are in need of a contraceptive device, consider a trip to Mexico, getting it customized, sized for you specifically, and installed, implemented down there. Not don't bring it back. And you're off to the races. For less than the cost that you pay in the U.S., you'll get a free right. trip to Mexico, go in the winter, benefit from the sunshine, and you're right. off. And, you're getting right. and there's two others I would add. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I one needs it. to have an annual thermogram. Oh, yes, the yes. Thermogram That's is going to show you if you have inflamed breast tissue. And if you have inflamed breast tissue, you better get rid of your excess weight. You better raise your vitamin D3 to 60. You know, you better stop your progestin drugs if you're doing it because you're, you're creating your own breast cancer. And the other is one that is a natural is to keep your mind and your body detoxed. And that means daily meditation. That means um, breast massage. You wanna keep the lymph in your breast moving. It means no underwires in the bras. It means get the bras off as much as possible. It means touch your breasts as much as possible because so many women that just sits there, it's stagnant. And then they're shocked when they develop breast cancer. They're letting all of the uh, toxins sit in their lymph system that's running through their breasts and nothing is ever moving, especially if they're unable to do a lot of exercise. 
or they have the wrong bras on, you know, that are not allowing any movement. Uh, so it's, again, it's question authority, question authority, question authority. All right. Well, thanks for applying your investigative reporting skills to putting the pieces of the puzzle together to help women understand what the variables are and how they can take control of their health with relatively simple interventions. Right. Right, right. And I say the book is now available on Amazon. Um, it'll, the ebook will be out um, in another week or so. And then someone has funded the audio book, which I'm delighted with. And 20% of all my net sales on this book are going to the-, the Susan Coleman Foundation. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> the Foundation for Metabolic Cancer Therapies. Okay, is that Tom Seyfried's? Uh... Is that what? Is that Tom Seyfried's? Uh, that yeah, that's Travis Christofferson. Uh, Travis Christofferson, that's right. He don't he does mo and, donates and most of that. He's to giving yeah. all the money, so all yeah. the money that he brings in with no administrative overhead goes straight to Tom's preclinical work with metastatic cancers. Yeah, and, and the, the nice thing about that is it's not donated to Boston College where he he's employed. Right. Because so it it's because if it went to Boston College, he'd have to take a fifty percent cut. So he gets a hundred percent of it. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. 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 Exactly. Because right. we've helped him out in that process too. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. all right. So all right. Well, thank you for your work, and uh, I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of the book and make sure. If you, and Mrs. said, if you, there's a woman in your life that you care about deeply, then this is something they're going to be uh, uh, concerned about. So, right. But I'm also offering uh, discounts on bulk orders. We've got some uh, biology classes that are wanting the book, um, book groups, um, women's breast cancer support groups. A lot of different kinds of groups are wanting to read this book. So they can go to my website, which is bustingbreastcancer.com and then get you know, 15, 20% off um, copies of the book when they buy a group of books. Good, excellent. Thank you for providing that uh, resource, appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. All right, thanks, Susan. Thank you.